Bag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views, and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative, and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Rorag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead, and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. This is episode 32 of the Raw Ag Podcast. Our guest today is Richard McFarlane. Richard and his family run the oldest Angus beef herd in South Australia. Wellington Lodge is 19,000 acres and it was established in 1845. Wellington Lodge has been owned and operated by the McFarlands for six generations and currently runs 800 Angus breeders and approximately 800 trading cattle. Richard, welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. And how are things over in uh, sunny South Australia? Tell us a bit about where you're from. Yeah, well, we're um, about an hour south of Adelaide. Uh, the easiest way to describe it, I suppose, is we're right at the end of the Murray River. Uh, sort of, the, We're not right at the end, but we're sort of at the start of the end, where the river comes out into the, the lower lakes. So, as you can imagine, we've... You know, we've got a fair bit of salty country on our low-lying stuff. We're very flat country. We get affected by a lot of wind too. Wind is our, is our probably one of our main enemies. But, um, yeah, we've had a well, – if we get average rain in December this year, we will have had an average rainfall year, which doesn't sound as, as good as what a lot of other people are getting around the place. But for us, it actually feels like we've had a good year because we've had some pretty pretty poor years – you know, for about three years prior to this one. But, um, yeah, things are looking pretty good. We've got, uh, you know, we normally dry off uh, mid-October, you know, around then. But uh, this year uh, we've just just done our closed season plan, which is when we think everything sort of, you know, dried off, and that was only yesterday. So the season's extended itself a fair bit for us this year. And that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Well, it does. It does. I mean, one of our one of our problems this year is we probably a bit lightly stopped uh, in that we didn't. No, normally, we run our our business uh, where we've got we about fifty percent breeding stock, uh, and that's just a self replacing herd, and then fifty percent traders, and those numbers fluctuate. But on average, it's about fifty percent. But this year we haven't had any traders because I was a bit a little bit nervous to go into the market when it was sort of at its peak, but it sort of see, keeps seems to be setting a new peak every day. Uh, so, yeah, we haven't gone into the market yet. We've, st- we've still got plenty of feed, so there's nothing stopping us from going in at any time. But, uh, yeah, we feel like we're a bit understocked. But we we set the business up that way. I suppose, you know, the breeders pay the bills. That was that was the idea of it. And so, you know, in a really poor year, we, you know, we don't have to bring any supplementary feed in. Uh, we can manage it and, and just run the breeders over the whole farm. And we still still get all our bills paid, but then the, the traders are sort of meant to be the the cream on the top. But with prices at the way the way they are at the moment, you know we don't really need any any breed any um, trading stock to to make a decent profit. So it's not it's not worrying us too much. So you're thinking at the moment there's a bit of a risk of buying um, stock in at their current price and perhaps having a fall, or is that not really coming into you? 
I actually don't think it's a risk right at the moment, but I think that it's just hard to get your head around paying that much for, yeah. for animals that you, yeah. I mean, it seemed to jump up quite quickly. And and also the other thing too was that, it, I mean, we've, we've traditionally bought sort of younger, uh, lighter stock and, and sort of basically growing them out, I suppose you'd call it. Like we're more fatness than traders probably, but we, uh, you know, they were very overpriced. Yeah, uh, the, the buy-in price was huge, yeah. Yeah, compared to the finished product. So it sort of felt like if the finished product price dropped a bit, well, then we could have been doing a hell of a lot of work for not much gain. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now tell us a bit more about where you're from because, um, you know, people listening to this might think you're, you know, down in a um, beautiful zone in southern Australia with green grass everywhere. But it's not really <laughs> like that, is it, Murray Bridge and Millicent? No. You know, we, no. Yeah. No, it's not. We're only... 15 inches of rain. Um, we've our property is about oh, 18 and a half thousand acres, uh, and yeah, but it's I mean the rainfall while it's is winter dominant. There's no doubt about that. Now definitely our growing season is 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 definitely winter dominant, and through to the sort of oh, you know half of the spring we get some good growth. But the, as I said before, we we tend to dry off quite quickly in you know mid October. So. Yeah, it's not easy. But having said that, you know we don't get, you know we don't get that real winter drought that a lot of the the, the okay. high rainfall coastal yep. country gets. So for cattle raising, well, is that because breeding, it stays a bit, it stays a little bit drier, and you don't sort of get anaerobic. Is that right? Or because you'd be the yeah, same temperature, so. wouldn't you? We don't get nearly as cold. No, um, you, don't. you know, we're right on the lake here, which is a big body of water, and it tends to keep it a bit, um, a bit warmer. Yep. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's for some reason the cattle seem to do pretty well here, and we've got a lot of annual grasses. I mean, we've predominantly been an annual system for a fair while now, based on we were originally a quite a large sheep sheep station, about seventy thousand acres. Yep. And at one point they were shearing forty five thousand sheep. Um, and oh, look, I don't know. I just think back in the back in the day when. Uh, wool was worth a lot and sheep wasn't worth a lot. They probably ran way too many sheep. And, you know, you see a lot of evidence of of the old landscape has, has changed into a into a bit more of a bit more of a wind blown, desolate looking landscape, uh, with annuals grasses and not many perennials around at all. Yeah. So we've sort of embarked on a you know, we've we've embarked on a program to try and you know, reverse that and, and promote the growth of perennial grasses and, uh, you know, with grazing management and those sorts of things to try and – because when I, you know, when I first came back here to the farm, for me, farming was – it felt like it was difficult. <laughs> or here, anyway, because as I said, I mean, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty harsh climate with the wind. You know, if you drive around our paddocks, we don't have too many trees, even though we've been planting quite a few recently – we you see the tree the trunk goes up up a little bit and then then it heads sort of to the northeast <laughs> because the prevailing wind is from the southwest uh, and and a lot of the trees have got those sort of that sort of bent look about them of just always always blowing over in the wind yeah so i mean um it's and the way of offending an australian farmer is to tell them how easy it is you know like um suppose the flats are pretty green up there in ironbark was a comment out of, <laughs> um, and um, but your climate really is tough. You know, I've got I go over there and uh, travel through, and 
you know, you've got that. I don't know. It's is it is it rude? You know, it's sort of like <laughs> it's a bit like the lunar surface. I sort of think sometimes. Um, and and so, what are you, what are your stocking rates? And um, to give you an example of that, I, I wouldn't call it rudeness, but the <laughs> I've been in I've been in situations where consultants have been there, going around a group and, and asking everyone sort of where they're from and then describing the landscape due to their knowledge of the geography and then perhaps giving them some ideas of what they need to do. And then when they when they get to me, they generally say, oh, you, oh you're there with the salt. And I say, yeah. And they say, oh, no, it's too hard. It's too hard. And so they move on to the next person. And that, <laughs> that can be embarrassing. But, but you know, we this, our, our salty low-lying country is actually for us very productive. I mean, it always has been when we were – when we used to do a lot of cropping because it was beautiful country to crop. It's all just flat black soil. Um, you know, so it makes it pretty easy to drive a tractor around uh, at seeding time and those sorts of things. But, you know, we were always fighting the ryegrass. The ryegrass was so prolific in there that we, it would, you know, it would really impact the crops if we didn't keep spraying it all the time. And so, and that was one of the things that led me to think, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, let's, let's work with the ryegrass because it's, it's so prominent and yeah. so, healthy all the time so, so it's not all that bad living here yeah no good <laughs> so rainfall you're you t- 15 inches and your stock carrying capacity because you've done some interesting things in the past i mean um i know and you could tell us a little bit about that and and, and i suppose i was always very interested in it because um you used to say that you know and i think that your place is quite different to anywhere else in southern australia but um Tell us about some of the things that you did to try and um, manage fertility and manage manage production, which may or may not have worked out, but they were quite interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. I mean, one of you mentioned fertility. So, I mean, we had always had a, a a little bit of trouble getting the cows pregnant without, um, you know, without providing them with an ex- a lot of extra nutrition. I mean, that's what we used to think we needed, but I think. Looking back now, I think it was just sort of running them all a bit too hard uh, and not quite understanding the, the the grazing process properly. But we it, one of one of the things we always wanted to try and achieve was to work out a way to get the the calves weaned off the cows before mating, because very early on we decided we wanted to, you know, go into team Tamania pretty hard and make use of all the genetics. So we wanted to AI the whole herd. Uh, but for us, you know, that was a big workload all at once. And, all, and um, you know, we didn't have many, many staff here. So we just, we wanted to spread it out a bit. So the first thing we did is we split up our mobs into four mobs to start with. Uh, and, that, and, and what we did then after that, because we decided we couldn't wean it um, two and a half months old, we thought that was too, too difficult and didn't think that would be healthy for the young calves at all. So we decided at four and a half months old, uh, we probably could wean before mating, but that would mean we would only be mating the cows every 15 months as opposed to every 12 months. But our preg test results weren't good enough. You know, they were sort of sitting around that, oh, but somewhere between 80 and 85%, which we weren't happy with at all. So we just, we, we thought, you know, let's, we've just got to try this. So we, we put these cows out to 15 months old and, and our preg test results jumped right up to 98% pretty much just by Giving taking the, the calves three, off. Calves off in another yeah, took, three months. 
Car- no, not another three months. No, but but the calves. So the calves stayed on for longer than that what they would be at mating age. Yeah, and then we'd wean them. We'd wean them about a, a month or so before um, mating, and that was just enough to turn the cows. And every cow pretty much got pregnant. We didn't change our mating program apart from. So we were getting. We felt we were getting um, the same number of calves in three years as what we were getting. Uh, by mating in 12 months. But, yeah, I don't know. We didn't do it for that long. It was a hell of a lot of work. We got so confused because, of course, one year you're mating the cows, these particular cows in June. The next year you're mating them in September and rolling over. And in actual fact, if you wanted to do four matings a year, you had to have five mobs. Yeah. But we got up to nearly nearly 1,000 cows with five mobs of 200. But um, it kept us pretty busy and, and got us pretty confused. Yeah. So the next the next step after that was what what then we decided right well, we've got to be courageous here and we just wean the calves at two and a half months and go back to our mating yeah so we so got, you did you wean your cow, weaning the before joining on a normal twelve month cycle now that you're back to that you were yeah yeah you were two and a yeah. half months that's what we did that's what we did our next step was that we got rid of one of the mobs of cows and went back to only four mobs of cows and mating in March, June, September and December and we were weaning basically when when the cattle would come in. So our mating process for the AI basically the first step is you bring all the cows in and do your culling and set the mob up for the ones you want to mate and the ones you want to get rid of and then you you put the cedars in the next day and that's basically what we were doing on the, the first day was sort of drafting up all the culling but we were also weaning the calves on that day and then putting the cedars in the next day. Yep. And it, it was pretty hectic. It did sort of work, though. I mean, we still got those really good preg test results because even that sort of, um, what is 11 days without the calves on the cows seemed to just switch, switch a, a flick a switch and start to do better. And uh, yeah, but the calves suffered. That was the problem. We had, and it was pretty intensive. We had yep. to feed them grain and, stuff for about, I think it was about 21 days. Uh, and then we had to sort of intensively graze them a bit after that before we just sort of put them out in the paddock to fend for themselves a bit. So what, weight were, the ca- what weight were the calves? So it's sort of 140 kilos or something, 150? Yeah, we didn't like weaning anything that was under 85. So uh, at the start, when we first started, we were just weaning everything, but we found it was just a waste of time if you're going to wean something that was under 85 kilos. It sort of went potty. and. Yep. No, no, that, no, no room in development at all. Yeah, yeah. So eighty-five was the cutoff in, in the end, and yeah, they they they'd go all right. And actually, to be honest with you, Rangers Valley actually quite liked it at the time because because they had that setback. And I know this goes against all the principles of raising quality meat, but the setback didn't come at weaning either. It used to come when we'd put them out in the paddock and. And they'd have to fend for themselves a bit, and that's probably our fault because we we took the, took our eye off them a bit. But they would have a bit of a setback, and when I say a setback, they just have very slow slow rate of growth. Yeah. And was that a lack of Rangers, protein? Do you think is that what lack of protein? Yeah, look, at, yeah, I think that yeah, they needed that grain. They um, needed needed sixteen longer sixteen or eighteen percent protein, and they weren't quite getting it. Perhaps is that. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that's right. And, and you know, at different times, I mean, we have in, in, in sort of summer, if we've had a bit of a rain, we have a lot of loose. And so that was always, that always do a bit better then, but the other groups wouldn't. But 
as I was saying, Rangers used to quite like it because they were a bit older when they went into the feedlot, that feedlot entry weight, and that, I think, used to help mm. them marbling. It would, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. 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 But, look, that because, I mean, you know, this is all learning, but um, we, we decided then that, and what probably changed our minds actually was fixed time AI came in, and that was a lot easier AI program because when I mean you'd know yourself obviously when you got calves on AI it's pretty difficult um, drafting in the yards and all that sort of extra work that you have to do to keep the calves and the, the calves and their mothers together mm-hmm. through the whole process. Then when fixed time came out, came in it was no it was you know a lot less arduous for the animals. So we went back. We would, we're now back and we've got rid of one mob to give us a bit of a break through the year and we've got three three herds that we AI with the calves on and we wean at seven months now, which okay. is a bit more traditional. Yeah, and so they're still wean, they're still joined at different times of the year? Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. The reason we do that, I mean, facilities, uh, I suppose, um, you know, we have to single mate too because we're progeny test herds, so yep. we... Uh, yeah, that we don't have the paddocks really for that uh, and also to spread our income over the year and also to keep our labour requirements sort of constant throughout the year and, and low. Uh, to make use of the bulls, we don't need as many bulls by spreading the spreading the herds, you know, splitting the herds into three. So there's quite a few reasons and actually, you know, we – we get asked about it all the time, but I, and I question it nearly every year. But we're still doing it, and we still—I could always find a way, a reason why we're still doing it. Yeah. So yeah, we we like it. It yeah. seems to work pretty well for us. Yeah. Now um, we set up uh, Team Tamania in nineteen ninety-five. I don't know when you came in. You would have been about pretty early on. Um, yeah, I reckon it was then. I reckon it was right at the start. Right at the start, yeah. So um, Team Tamani was set up. You're a, a progeny test member, which means you collect data for the nucleus herd at Tamania, and um, and that data goes into improving the accuracy of the bulls that you breed and uh, that you use, and um, not breed but use, and that data uh, filters into our system and improves the accuracy, basically, of the nucleus with a combination of other progeny test members. And we also get, um, through the progeny test, we get carcass feedback, which is really important. Um, obviously, we're breeding cattle. We need to know how well they're going in the marketplace. And um, the team Tamania gives us that data. How um, How is it going from your perspective? I mean, why did you get involved? Well, I mean, back, that was a long time ago now, you know. <laughs> it's uh, really really snuck up on us. But that, um, yeah, what was that, 26 years ago or something? And yep. the back then, you know, I, I was never a, a natural stockman myself or, or a natural, never had a natural eye for animals and stuff. You know, they all look pretty much the same to me. So when... Is that when an this, advantage or a disadvantage? Well... <laughs> I think it was an advantage because because I, I absolutely jumped at the chance to be involved in Team Tamani because it meant I didn't have to make these very what I considered to be very important decisions about our, our breeding program. And so, I mean, while while we can always keep keep an eye on it and keep tracking it, uh, you know, it gave us a chance to step away from that a little bit and just um, 
you know, just follow along behind behind the stud's progress. Uh, and nowadays, you know, our, our whole breeding program, uh, uh, the late David Plant, you know, who we all loved and admired, he 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 said to me one day, he said, "You're you're just on autopilot here." And I had to think about it, but he was right. You know, we just everything just seems to happen, and it's a it's a system that you know we still truly believe in and, and works fantastically for us. Yeah, well, that's good. So um, you just had Liam over, um, Carlisle. What was he up to with you? Um, so, yeah, so being a progeny test herd, we we um, scan all of our heifers and steers at their 400-day sort of wait uh, time. And, you know, the, all the all the data is fed back through breed plan and, and helps uh, helps with the, the bulls, EBVs. No, that's good. So that's his, yeah, he's collecting, um, he's scanning. Live muscle, marbling, and um, fat depths, and eye muscle, and eye muscle area, um, which all goes into the system. So you know that's important. The the thing that uh, with the team's really adding is that three or four good bits of carcass data just blows away about two thousand scans um, in accuracy. It's right, it's yeah. quite incredible that because uh, the, the scan is a really good indication of marbling, for instance, but it's only sixty percent correlated. So you can only go certain so far with the accuracy of that. Um, you need huge numbers to be able to get the numbers up, and the team provides that. But once the carcass data comes in, it just uh, it actually is marbling. So um, we're able to then make you know huge. Um, improvements in accuracy, which is what you do for us. It's really good. Yeah, we've seen so much improvement in that area too over the years of just of just you know using this system and the feedback that we get from Rangers Valley. You know, it's incredible to think that you know we we were happy if we got a two score marble uh, animal going up there back in the early days, and nowadays you know it's it's not out of the ordinary to get a nine score marble go up and go into their special black market uh category yep yeah now that and that's um pretty exciting stuff they certainly like those they pay them well so their original um market they had to set up the um the the black market the final um black market one because they were getting so many high marbling angus that almost fitted into the um, well, they do. They fit into that Wagyu um, category, even though they are quite a different product. They seem to be quite a different product to Wagyu. Yeah. Yeah, which is really, really exciting. I mean, I remember um, uh, Wayne Upton always said, you know, it's easier to easier to uh, pick an outlier from within, a, within one breed and, and breed head, head in that direction than it is to deal with crossbreeding and... I think that's what we've done here. I mean, it's proven that we, we can we can take our Angus herds and, and turn them into really high marbling herds. Yeah, yeah. So the, the crossbreeding debate, the multi-breed debate is coming back up again, and, you know, I'm a bit of an advocate of multi-breed. And what would your thoughts be if um, Tamania one day in the, you know, in the not-too-distant future lined up some um, composites for you? Oh well, look. Yeah, it's it's definitely not out of the question at all. I mean, one thing we we've always had cattle here since I've been a young kid, uh, or since I can ever remember, and always been black cattle. But since we've started uh, trading cattle, uh, you know, you learn a lot more because we're not we're not um, specifically trading black cattle. We're 
they can be anything really. We've had a lot of crossbreds here and, you know, you just get start, you start learning, you start seeing the way different cattle perform. And we, there's no doubt we've had some outstanding um, uh, cattle here that have performed really well and a lot of them being crossbreds. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, they, they leave our farm. We, we've got no idea what their meat tastes like or anything like that, whereas our Angus, we know that they, they've been performing really well because we get the feedback through on them. Yeah, so the, that's the challenge whenever you introduce outside genetics that you know what you're introducing so you know the advantages and the disadvantages and you can um, accommodate all of that. So at the moment we can't do it because we don't have a multi-breed analysis so it's a very difficult thing to do but anyway that's well that might be something that's coming down coming down the tracks so um what sort of things have you got planned for the future what do you see as being challenges for the beef industry yeah i mean it's we, we've been um heading down the regenerative ag type methods here i suppose if that's one if you want to put a label on it but um I mentioned before that you know I always thought it was hard work here, and and thought that the landscape looked a bit sort of I don't know would you say eroded or something like that. But so one, once we sort of got wind of this new way of doing things or or yeah. a way of doing things that could regenerate the landscape, we got really excited about it and started fiddling around with it. And you know we've we've implemented some pretty pretty exciting grazing strategies and things like that. And I'm starting to see now that um, the landscape is is improving and, you know, it feels really good and it just makes farming a bit more enjoyable because you, you feel like your farm's improving. Um, so when, it, when you talk about the beef industry, you know, we, we hear so many negative things about, you know, pollution of methane and uh, all of that stuff. Whereas I think, I mean, I think the challenge is the message that's getting out there is 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 not right. You know, the what what grazing animals can do for the for the environment and for you know combating climate change, I believe, is just massive. So one challenge there that you know we're I mean we're we're not really broadcasting the message too much ourselves because for us we found it to be more profitable doing it this way anyway. So we're just happy. Doing yeah, it, yeah. Doing it like anyway, we're not doing it for the environment, or we're not doing it for anyone else because, uh, you know, it, it's we, we're quite selfish in that sense, I suppose. Where we, it's it's a more profitable way of farming and a much more enjoyable way of farming. So we're loving it, but at the same time, I think it would be good if we could start getting that message changed and and having, you know, I don't want to blame the city people, but it's quite often the people in the city who are making these uneducated statements and suggesting that farmers are, are polluting the, the world, whereas I think really what they need to start doing is embracing more farmers because I think farmers hold the key. You know, they hold, they hold a, a big part of the key in their hands and, and if we can start getting those messages out there, I think the future of the beef industry looks fantastic. Yeah, and obviously there are good and bad farmers um, and there are some that don't care like you do. Um, we, how do we, you know, we need to somehow be able to pass that message on that, you know, there are there are Richard McFarlands of the world that um, actually do go outside and make sure that they're doing, improving the landscape and the environment every day and there are those that don't really care so much. I think um, uh, my experience with um, getting involved in first sustainable agriculture was at um, in the Otways at Pardue when it, where, we, where I was born and, and it... Um, 
it was country that uh, you know didn't have high cation exchange site, and um, you know was saw a country that needed to be nurtured and loved and looked after. It didn't have that um, resilience, I suppose, that many other agricultural places that I've been to have. And I think you're in that category, aren't you? Where you know if you do something wrong, you get told pretty quickly, or you can see it pretty fast. So you've been forced or sustainable agriculture is something that you've needed to do and now you've moved into actually restoring it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think so. I mean, I, I'm constantly amazed at how powerful and and clever and whatever uh, nature is. So, you know, while, yes, you get told that you've made a mistake, it, you know, I, I, it doesn't worry me as much anymore because I can. I, I know it doesn't take that long to to start becoming on the mend. So, yeah, and I mean, I, I think when you say you know there's good farmers and bad farmers, I think uh, I think this this it's it's just about an education uh, yeah thing. I don't think that I don't think any good and bad really perhaps is. not not the right word. Just um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think any farmers out there really to be a bad farmer. It's just that they, you know, that's the way they know how to do it. I've got to put um, uh, John Wright's cap on and play, in, invert my argument from a couple of weeks ago. But um, agri- farmers need to also take on responsibility of climate change. We 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 do have, and um, we do have a responsibility to do exactly what we need to do to, to play our part. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Yep, I do. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I think that that message will, will increase. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you know, when it, I think it'll become harder and harder to be a bad farmer because uh, it'll either be, it'll either sort of be, you know, pressured upon you not to do certain things. Yeah, yeah. So we're not really good at um, suggesting to farmers down the road that their animal welfare is not up to standard and things, are we, as farmers? We tend to drive past and grizzle about it to our partners but don't do much more about it. Um, I don't know whether we're going to have to start, you know, um, talking a bit more about some poor practices in agriculture. What do you think? Yeah, I do. I, I agree. My, some of my neighbours, I wouldn't want to approach them too much because, uh, well, I, I get on well with all my neighbours. But like you say, it's not it's not a topic. You don't want to tell anyone what they should be doing. But I think these days, this, this, it seems to be there's so many more opportunities to learn about uh, better ways of farming and, you know, more environmentally friendly ways of farming. It, you know, it's really gathering a lot of steam and I think that's really exciting. Richard, just... Um Tell us, we've spoken a little bit about grazing and your calendar for the year, I suppose, but tell us a bit about some of your grazing principles, particularly in line with um, looking after the sustainability and the regenerative side of your farming. Yeah, okay. So we we definitely have two distinct sort of seasons here and uh, one one we call the, the open season or the growing season and one we call the closed season and, that's, and we manage the two seasons pretty differently here. Um, the open season, which for us tends to run, I safely say about the 1st of June through to the 15th of October, so it's not all that long, but um, that, that's the time when everything's growing and, you know, the soil's moist and uh, plants are green for starters. And so that's when we can ha- actually have a real impact on the soils. So we, 
we uh, use a sort of a um, system where we have, let's say that the farm is divided into seven sections. One seventh we would call a Sabbath where we don't graze it at all. And, and another seventh is called the priority graze paddock, which is where we really do concentrate on that grazing hard. So we, we graze it right down flat and then we walk away from it. And when it gets up to about toe height, a couple of inches height, um, we come back straight away from wherever we are and come back to that paddock and keep it down. Uh, and this is the impact we're trying to have. We're trying to create change. We're trying to have different things happening in the paddock every year uh, rather than just the same old rotations going around. And we're trying to promote uh, germination of perennial grasses in that priority graze paddock. And then in the Sabbath paddock, we're trying to let those plants that have germinated, you know, strengthen up, go to seed and do that sort of thing. So it's a system that is really working well for us. Um, I've, always, I've always liked systems for some reason. I can't seem to do anything without having a little system involved. <laughs> uh, my, my grazing advisor, when he first came here and met me, he saw that all my, uh, all my grazing rotations were laminated he just said that's no good because if they're laminated how are you ever going to change them so we always used to argue about that but we've found this happy sort of medium of this system of, of moving from a priority graze paddock to a to a sabbath paddock and also what the sabbath paddock does as well is it, it really forces us to concentrate our stock a bit more heavily in those six sevenths of the property that are still being grazed mm-hmm. um yep during the grazing so, and, season and then, yeah, that's only during the growing season. So the closed season we operate, you know, quite differently in the sense of we still try and not graze the Sabbath paddock in the, in the closed season, but if we have to, we will. But um, uh, with that one, when when we've decided that the season shut off and, you know, all the annuals have pretty much died uh, and gone to seed and dried off, well, then we assess how much feed we've got, just do a simple whole farm assessment of exactly how much feed we've got and then obviously we know how many animals we've got and we can look at the timeline and see when we're going to run out of feed and manage the stocking rates accordingly because we're trying to protect our ground cover and get to the get to the next open season with with decent ground cover so it's just more of a more of a, a sort of a you know ration based system there of getting the cattle through and of course if we get rain in that period well then the perennials will grow so that helps us but if we don't well then we can go out and do another plan as well and reassess again and keep reassessing so and then we've got all these policies in place that if the if the if the closed season goes for longer than we thought it would well then we've got you know early weaning and selling off all the dry cows and things earlier and all these sorts of things so mm-hmm. it's we've designed it so it's it's pretty it's taken a lot of the risk out of our farming now grazing, you know, we 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 don't we never really feel like we're we're going to overgraze the, the farm. Uh, so yeah, for that it's working pretty well for us now. Fantastic, yeah. So what? How about um, livestock condition stuff while you're doing this? And also, you've got three different mobs at three different stages. Um, how do you fit all that into these open and closed pasture cycles? Yeah, well, what we've done, and look. Don't get me wrong, we've got so much more room for improvement here, which I actually find exciting because we're going pretty well 
uh, as it is, but I can see so, so many other things that we can do in the future. But um, we run, we actually split the farm into five areas, I suppose. We've got the three mating herds and they sort of run on one area. They do swap over and stuff because one area we, is a bit of a mating area, one's a bit of a calving area, and we try and swap them around a little bit. But um, And then we have our, our growing stock, so the calves and yearlings and things that have been born from our breeders that mm-hmm. go out into another area. And then we have our another area, which is typically our trading stock. And what happens in a really good season is that all those areas will shrink down in size for the breeders and the traders will creep into them. Uh, but then, of course, in a, in, a, in a poor year, dry year, really dry year, that the, the, all of our cattle spread out into the whole farm. Yeah. Okay, so that's where you, you get where you get your grazing pressure, flexibility, and um, yeah. So a lot of you know con- conventional um, beef system in Western Victoria is um, we- you know wean them onto a truck. You're a long way from that, aren't you? You know, like you've moved on through probably three or four different phases of man- trying to change up your management structures, which is. Um, Pretty brave, really. Yeah, well, well, thank you. I think it probably was. It probably a bit stupid, really. But um, we, yeah, I think I think now I feel very comfortable now that we've sort of got there in the end, and it, and it seems to me pretty low risk. I mean, things like the AI, for instance. Like we 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 love doing the AI because we know that once the AI technician drives out the gate, there's you know, and we're getting pretty good at it. So it's roughly sixty to seventy percent of them are pregnant. Yeah. And that's really good insurance policy, you know. And then, uh, you know, the 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 low risk of uh, of the the gray, you know, never really being too worried about um, overgrazing. Uh, we've got that system going pretty well now too, so that we can. It's all pretty risk free, and also the fact that the breeders pay the bills. So unless we're in a in a sort of a really really bad drought and we've got to start selling off breeders, well then we know we're always going to have our bills paid. So it's and and that's not with these these massive prices. You know this was sort of 2013 we set this up and the prices were nowhere near that and the, and the cows were paying the bills then. So it's yeah it's a good system and it and it's it's a happy system. You know we're all pretty happy. We're never stressing too much. Yeah, well that's important too, isn't it? So we're getting towards the end of um, our chat and we on the raw egg have uh, the three M's and um, so what mistakes and um, you probably already told us a couple of them but um, go for it <laughs> yeah I think I have already but look I've got I've got one I mean a general one and then I've got one specific example I can give you too which I think is a good one but we I mean obviously mistakes happening all the time but we I think when I was younger I was always a bit gullible and a bit sort of too trusting of, of others, you know, people, you know, and that, and, you know, it's not that they weren't trustworthy, it's just that they had different agenda. So, for instance, you know, they might have just actually been trying to do their job and sell me as much of something as they can. <laughs> but I, I never sort of used to, I just used to go for it. And, you know, we, we've got led down paths um, quite often where it just sort of cost us, cost us money and cost us time in, in you know, landscape evolution, all that sort of thing. So I think that I've learned a bit more over the years. I'm still pretty gullible, I must admit, but I, I have learned to to be more observant, I suppose, and to sort of just, you know, try things for myself and, and make my own mind up before running, jumping into something. 
So that that was a. I think it's not really a, a, a full on mistake, but it's something that I would I would change uh, if I if I could go back and tell my younger self something. But one example of a really good mistake that we made um, was one day I'll never forget was just leading up to an AI program, and we were getting the cows up the laneway. And we had, and this is not a very wide laneway either, and we had the 200 cows in the mob with calves, and we had the neighbours' kids here, we had our kids out there, the workmen, me, the wife, everyone in this laneway, and we could not get these cows up the laneway. And so I'm starting to say things like, you know, these cows are too quiet, you know, these cows are too cunning or they're too, you know, there's something wrong with the cows. Uh, but then I sort of realised that actually, I, think, I think, don't think it was the cows, it was us. And, um, you know, while we thought we were such good stockmen and, and, you know, stock handlers, I suddenly then sort of realised, no, we're actually not. And so that's when we started, you know, seeking out Nick Kentish and, and going, getting his help. And, and now everyone here, uh, that, I make sure everyone that comes and works here does the course. I've done the course twice and I've got to admit, the, the stock handling here is so much better than what it was, and we never have trouble getting the cows in anymore. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah. that that was a really good mistake that we learned a lot from that day. Yeah, and I think that the temperament of the animals has dropped right off over the last 15 years. You know, like, I, I actually really do believe that, you know, the gen- genetic selection pressure that we've been putting on docility means that the animals don't actually move off you like they used to. Yeah, so does that mean you're going to start putting some some <laughs> steeriness back into the bulls well, or something? <laughs> we probably need to start selecting on particular characters so we can get them to walk off you, but we don't have them <laughs> not being docile. But I think that's getting yeah. a bit too, you know, we need to be a clinical psychologist to do that, a cow clinical psychologist. So you said before you, I like um, gullible. I mean, I reckon you're so better off to be a gullible than a cynic. And gullible leads to, you know, not... Uh, trusting everyone and of course if you trust everyone everyone else trusts you so I wouldn't be too worried about being gullible <laughs> okay <laughs> so I believe, I believe what about you what about some um, masterpieces yeah well I mean, there haven't been many to be honest but I think look one thing that we we're very proud of here is is the farm itself my family I'm sixth generation here you know so there's always that slight bit of pressure to keep the farm going i think they say uh the first generation makes it builds it or something the second one buggers it and the third one loses it well i'm the sort of second group of three and uh so it's your time (laughs) it's my time to probably lose the farm but no everything looks all right you know we've We've done we've done our succession planning, which was a real process, and I know it's a process for, for for most people and all farmers, especially because it's such a big asset that they've got and it's their main asset. So it's always difficult. But we've got we've, we 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 did that quite a few years ago now, uh, and we still have happy families. So we're we're very happy with that. Um, you know, I think that that the looking out and seeing that the the landscape. I believe is improving and so that makes me feel good so to me just having the farm going and, and me being able to see that it can keep going to the next generation is, is is a bit of a masterpiece for me yeah well done the that's, other, that's a good the other one too when I was 27 I was lucky to jag a good woman 
<laughs> uh, you know, I mentioned how I was gullible. Well, well, Emma definitely was not gullible at all. And she, she used to get me through a lot of, uh, you know, she could see straight through, through things that I couldn't sometimes. So, uh, you know, she's been fantastic and we're still married uh, after 22 years and we've got two great kids that we're, we're proud of. So I suppose from a holistic point of view, it's the whole thing, isn't it? It's the farm, the family and all that. That's what we're, we're really proud of. Well done, Richard. Yeah, that's good. And um, mentors, who's, who's steered you in the right direction through your life? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always so many. But, I mean, I have to say my parents, uh, you know, Dad Dad was always, you know, we, we saw things differently, actually, Dad and I, and um, because I think we're slightly different people, but probably a lot of areas were very similar and perhaps clashed, but... He, he always would back my crazy ideas. I mean, we talk about all that, that mm. early weaning and all that stuff that we were doing. Dad, and, you know, he, he was sort of an, a bit of a natural stockman, um, whereas I wasn't. And, but even with all that, he, he would back, back, you know, back me and, and support me doing it. Even with the cropping, you know, we went from, we went, when we were cropping, we don't do it anymore, but when we were cropping, we went to liquid fertiliser and new technologies and things. And Dad was always happy to, to do that and, and I think also with I mean he and mum always had a fantastic relationship you know they're always sort of best mates did everything together and you know that you just even though at the time you, you probably don't think much of it but you look back and think wow that's sort of you know set me up and given me my values I suppose yeah yeah so it'd be, it'd be hard work wouldn't it really for to be your dad you know, with you. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean that in the right. In the Thanks, yeah. Tom. Well, it would be because you got you know there. As you get older, you become more conservative, and um, you you know you don't want to take risk. And then you've got a, a son coming along who's um, energetic and young and wants to take plenty of risk. And 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 if he takes a risk and it doesn't work, he's got the rest of his life to recover from it. Whereas the next generation doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it that's is, right. It so I, I, it's very, very good of a father to let you, you know. And my father did the same to me. Obviously, you know, he really did. Well, he was. Yeah, I was very lucky. To, you're right. But I mean, and then, I, you know, apart from that, I mean, there's just been so many. I think we one one thing that we are lucky is with Team Tamania. You know, we we get together every so often for the conference, and it's just great to have a group of people who who you know, are like-minded and are producing a similar product and going through similar systems. And there's been so many within that, that group that have, I, I think that I've got a lot of information from and, and, you know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily mentoring, but it's it's something that, that's really valuable and has been to me for my farming sort of career. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today. And um, Absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed catching up and having a chat with you, Richard. And you're doing amazing things over there. I often um, think about, you know, some of the incredible ideas you've had and where they actually come from. I suppose that's, you know, because um, they're quite left to field and, um, and it's great to see it all working so well. So thanks for coming on and, and, um, and we'll catch up soon. Yep, pleasure, Tom. Yep, catch up soon. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app.